This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our show is Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Uh, David Frawley, also known as uh, Vamadeva. He is a Vedic teacher and translator, trained in the fields of yoga, Vedanta, Ayurveda, and Vedic astrology. Uh, in 2015, he was the first Westerner to receive the prestigious Padma Bhushan Award from the President of India for service to the nation of a higher order. He was recently granted a special National Eminence Award by the South Indian Education Society. Thank you so very much, uh, Vamadeva, for taking the time to come on our uh, podcast today. Thank you. It's a great honor to be with you. Phil is an old friend, and we're very happy to share in this work with both of you. Thanks, Vamadeva. Um, you have one of the most remarkable resumes of uh, anybody I know. You, you um, are a recognized expert in Vedic literature. You've translated Vedic literature. You, you're a recognized teacher of uh, Ayurveda and uh, Jyotish, or Vedic astrology. And very unusually, you're, you're well-recognized and uh, rega highly regarded in India as well as the West. And you've done all this without the usual uh, Western academic credentials. So can you uh, give us a brief overview of what got you into this work and uh, how this great passion uh, was first ignited? Yes. Well, first of all, nobody has this type of background in coming out of academia itself, because academia doesn't teach those yeah. things. Mm -hmm. right. And I started out like you in the late 60s in that generation, and of course we had a number of Eastern teachings, whether it was Maharishi Mahashyogi or Paramahansa Yogananda. And Yogananda's uh, teaching, I think, was the first thing that really impacted me. But in studying those teachings, I was also drawn to the teachings of Sri Aurobindo and also uh, Ramana Maharshi. And I was drawn as kind of a more intellectual, uh, philosophically minded person to study the older traditions. And I gradually began to do that, starting on my own in, in Denver, Colorado, uh, and then gradually picking up over time uh, resources and connections and eventually traveling to India. Two events uh, affected me, uh, apart from, well, first of all, the thing that affected me was just my contact with the teachings by way of meditation and study. And then I was able to come into contact with Ananda Moy Ma uh, through, uh, through uh, actually through letters, first in the mid-70s before I could go to India. And then I did some private research of my own on the Vedas in about, starting about that time. And in 1979, I met M.P. Pandit of the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, also in the United States, and showed him my work. He said he would publish the work in India. I said I wasn't an academic. He says, because you were not an academic, you were able to see things that uh, they don't. And he began regular publication of my work in India in 1979. That has continued uh, since. And I've since gone to India more than 40 times. I've met most of the great teachers, most of the great organizations there, as well as worked with uh, many of them uh, in the United States. So that is kind of, uh, in a nutshell, a quick uh, overview of my background. But it's the teachings themselves that drew me in mm -hmm. and some of the great modern teachers as well. Uh, Vamadeva, in 1979 when you started your research, uh, 
what was your focus and, and how has it evolved uh, in, in the last 30, 40 years? What, what are the different areas of interest that you initially had and has it continued pretty much the same or you, have you branched out into many other areas of interest? Yes, it's continued to develop. Uh, I began with an interest in yoga, which then took me into Vedanta, which I studied in some depth. That took me into the Vedas through Sri Aurobindo's work. And my initial work was translating and studying Rig Veda. And all of my work has that kind of Vedic foundation. Mm -hmm. But over time, I connected also to Ayurveda and to uh, Jyotish and to the greater system of the Sanatana Dharma. So it's been a continual unfoldment through those teachings from the Vedic roots to the different branches of Vedic knowledge or what today we also call the Vedic sciences. Bhamadeva, you, you've uh, alluded a couple of times to um, the your difference between your work and your research and what is typically um, done in, in academia. Um, maybe you could uh, illuminate some of that for our listeners. Um, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the way the uh, Dharmic traditions are treated in academia. Um, how, how, what is your assessment of that as a, an insider on one hand and an outsider on the other? Yes, well, first of all, I approach this as a sadhak, as part of a spiritual quest, as a part of a meditation and spiritual practice, not as an academic. And I studied what I would say we would call inside the tradition with traditional yogis and people uh, who are also practitioners of these subjects and also following uh, various sadhanas. So naturally, an inside the tradition view and a practitioner-based view of these yogic and Vedic teachings is going to be very different than an academic trained in a very different Western mindset, often sometimes even a colonial or Marxist mm -hmm. mindset, as in looking at the teachings. So we have a different perspective and a certain critique. And I think there is a validity to inside the tradition views as well. Outside the tradition views may also show some things. But for those who want to practice the teachings, the inside tradition views, I think, are more relevant. Uh, Vamadeva, uh, one of the areas of expertise that you have, one of the areas you, you've studied extensively is Vedic astrology, also known as, uh, my understanding, Jyotish. Uh, I, I've actually uh, had my Jyotish chart done uh, probably a dozen times, and, and I, I know very little about it, and I found it to be, uh, for the most part, helpful. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, uh, about Jyotish or Vedic astrology, how it's different than Western astrology, and, and um, I guess what's most confusing to me in, in any type of astrology is the physics of it, how it actually works. This is a subject matter we could do several shows on, but just in it, and I, I, so I, the question might be a little too broad, but in a nutshell, uh, how somebody might uh, uh, utilize this in their life and, and where it comes from. Yes, I did a whole feature article for Hinduism Today for its October, November, December issue covering uh, all of that, about 16 pages. Mm -hmm. But to put it briefly, Jyotish is the eye of the Vedas. It is the science of time, the science of karma, and also relates to the movement of the cosmic prana. It's based upon the idea that everything in the universe is interconnected and that the celestial bodies in heaven are uh, also connected to events on earth. 
the more common mystical, microcosmic, macrocosmic correspondences. So through this science of karma, uh, Jyotish helps us understand the karmic influences in our lives, our karmic potentials, the energy pattern of the subtle body, what I also call the DNA of the soul, as opposed to simply the DNA of the physical body, the soul tendencies or some scars that we come into. So Jyotish has a good potential for life guidance on all levels. There's also many levels you can go beyond the basic birth chart. You can work with an astrologer for in some depth and uh, over a long period of time and discover uh, much more. But it has these many depths and dimensions covering all aspects of our life, whether it's finances, relationship, career, physical or psychological health, and also creativity and spirituality. So it's a very important discipline to bring into our lives. It is not fatalistic or deterministic or prediction-oriented. Simply, mm-hmm. it is looking at the influence and energies we have and how to work with them, like the doshas of Ayurveda shows us how to develop a lifestyle to keep our doshas in balance. And for people who uh, are curious, how does it differ from Western astrology? Yes, it differs from Western astrology in several ways. First of all, the commonality is that uh, both systems use planets, signs, and houses. The main uh, technical difference is Vedic astrology calculates the zodiac differently using the fixed stars or what is called the sidereal zodiac. As, uh, as many people know, uh, particularly this idea of moving into the age of Aquarius, the vernal equinox has been moving from the uh, point of zero Aries back through Pisces. So in Vedic astrology, if someone's born on March 21st, we don't regard them as zero Aries. We put them at around six degrees Pisces, which is for the sun, which is the actual place among the fixed stars. And all the other planetary positions and house positions and sign positions are taken back that way about uh, 24 degrees. But besides that difference, Vedic astrology is much more complicated. It has special planetary yogas showing how planets connect. It has whole systems of planetary periods uh, for timing matters. It has 27 nakshatras or lunar constellations. It has 16 divisional charts and many other influences that makes it much more complex and specific and having a more... Uh, you know, specific combinations for showing different things in the chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vamadeva, uh, you, you have a tremendous body of knowledge uh, in many areas uh, of Vedic teaching. Um, do you think that you came into this world, uh, you know, based on the theory of reincarnation, with uh, having done a lot of work in this area? Is it possible that one just accumulates all this and has the propensity to go in this direction? Uh, without any, uh, uh, anything in their DNA, anything that they came into this world with already. Uh, what is your feeling about that? Well, uh, first of all, I did obviously have certain karmic background. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the Vedic teachings I could make sense, with, sense of almost immediately upon looking at them. Some of my friends in India called it the Frawley phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> connected it connected it back to past life influences, and I'm aware of those things. I'm aware of past life influences. I'm conscious of them, and I know how they operate. And often, to keep teachings alive, teachers also have to come back in some way, or at least maintain that. And in the teachings, we know that your buddhi or your higher knowledge awareness comes back with you in every uh, single life. So there are a number of people born in the West today who have some of these past life connections in the East 
and even uh, vice versa. And we don't know our background. Someone could think, oh, I don't have any background in these things, and so how can I know? But at a deeper level of soul awareness, almost any person may. And at a deeper level of soul awareness, the entire universe and the cosmic mind dwells within each one of us. So we should be open to a greater spiritual potential within each one of us and not worry so much about past life karma, but be more concerned about looking more deeply inside of ourselves and having a faith and connection with our deeper spiritual nature that is uh, one mm-hmm. with the divine reality that is all pervasive. Very good. Uh, Vamadev, the um, people uh, listening to the show and, and uh, just exploring their spirituality in general hear terms like Vedic, uh, yoga, Hinduism, Dharma, Vedanta. Um, the intersection and interaction of these terms can often be confusing for people, especially the, the word Hinduism. Um, do you, can you first of all sort of uh, ferret out some of that for listeners, and do you think of yourself as Hindu? If somebody says, are you Hindu, what do you say? Yes. Yes, we see, we have to understand that there are different languages for different subjects. You know, modern physics has a certain language, modern medicine has a certain language, spirituality in the Eastern sense has a certain language, and the meditation traditions in the Eastern world have been more continuous, uh, more state and religion supported, so they've been able to develop, I think, better than those in the West and develop and maintain and preserve a more specific language in terms like Dharma or Karma or Shakti, or Samadhi, or Chakras. All these different things uh, reflect that. And some of these terms can be confusing for us initially, but in the long term we recognize that they are much more specific towards the inner reality that we experience through meditation than kind of the very general terminology we have in the West, particularly in Western philosophy, which is really not so concerned with the exploration of higher states of consciousness, which we do have in the East. And then we've had the problem of these Eastern spiritual terms being given Western common translations. And this is a problem, for example, Atman and self, or Dharma and religion, or yoga becoming asana, or tantra becoming sex, or moksha, liberation uh, from the cycle of rebirth, being identified with salvation. So sometimes the translations also breed uh, confusion and cause uh, mistranslations to arise. Now the term Hinduism is a modern term for a tradition that has always been called Sanatana Dharma, which means the eternal Dharma or the eternal universal way of truth. And in India, spiritual and teachings were called dharmas. And dharma doesn't mean faith as religion. It means a way of spiritual practice generally through meditation. So there are theistic approaches to dharma. There are non-theistic approaches to dharma. There is the Buddhist approach to dharma, for example, which is, of course, uh, not uh, theistic. And there's an emphasis on knowledge more so than faith. Uh, so Hinduism as Sanatana Dharma is rooted in Veda, which means basically knowledge or science, and with various practices of yoga and meditation that place our own direct experience of truth above any particular outer ideology, faith, 
or worldview that we hold to. So definitely in that sense, following these things, I do refer to myself as a Hindu. And I've also tried to help uh, remove some of the misconception about what Hinduism is and its greater meaning as Sanatana Dharma. And in that context, I've done a lot of work with the American magazine Hinduism Today, as well as with various uh, Hindu organizations in India, reclaiming this greater dharmic understanding behind the uh, Hindu tradition. Uh, Vamadeva, you mentioned before, and I, I'm curious, I, I wanted to ask you about one of the uh, saints you encountered, uh, I believe when you first went to India, uh, Ananda Moima, that uh, many of our listeners have heard of, but many maybe have not heard about her. I've heard many stories of her. Uh, could you just say a few words about her and her influence on you? Well, first of all, I contacted her by correspondence, and by the time I reached India, she had actually passed away. Mm -hmm. But Ananda Moima was the most famous or highly regarded woman saint of modern India. She was often seen as the mother of all the great Indian teachers, uh, like Ramana Maharshi was seen as the great father. She was a Bengali saint and yogini. She has wonderful dialogues. She had many uh, great disciples. She was very close to Swami Shivananda of uh, Rishikesh. And even, I think, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi went to visit her. She was a woman teacher of the highest order that can compare with any of the great men teachers of all time. And her works need more uh, study and examination today. Yes, and, and I will add that one of my great regrets is never uh, getting to India in, in time to uh, meet her in person. But I sat and meditated at her uh, ashram in uh, hardwar, and it was a very powerful experience. And just her photograph, which you'll see on a lot of uh, American uh, uh, practitioners' altars and desktops, is is a very powerful thing. Yes, uh, and she encouraged me in various ways and gave me special teachings, and in def definitely instilled my confidence to study some of these deeper Vedic teachings that as an American, young American, kind of working on his own, would otherwise uh, not have. Very good. Um, one of the issues that has come up in, in recent time uh, with this uh, tremendous uh, interest that's grown over the course of uh, our lifetimes in Vedic teachings in the West and, and yoga is this issue of uh, what some people call cultural appropriation. And there was even an incident recently where a university uh, did not allow yoga classes because the, the, the uh, Western culture was appropriating it from, from India. Um, it, the way I look at it, there's a very difficult and fine line between inappropriate appropriation, so to speak, and uh, adaptation of these teachings to our Western way of life. How do you see that, and, and what problems do you see arising from this cross-section of East and West? Yes, there's actually a bigger issue. What's happened is while the Vedic teachings have been spreading to the West, including yoga, in India, Vedic teachings, including yoga, have been under siege, often by Western-educated Indians. Mm -hmm. And there's a large Marxist contingency in the Indian academic section that, is with its atheistic background, has been very negative about that. 
so many of these groups that are expanding in the West actually find themselves under siege or criticized in the Indian context from what they see is more Western uh, materialistic or uh, even political and sometimes even religious missionary forces. So there's a very different dynamic in India where these traditions, not only the Tibetan, but also the Hindu and many of the others uh, are struggling to uh, survive. Now, in the Western context, we do not always see that, and we want to use these things for our own personal uh, benefit. And, of course, there are traditions here that show us how to do that in a legitimate way, starting with Ramakrishna Vedanta and Yogananda and all of that. But then we have our usual Western business, commercial, and advertising uh, needs and the change of the times with the social media. So there is a tendency to expropriate many things and to exaggerate uh, certain uh, qualities, including to physicalize and sensationalize yoga. And we can certainly understand people who in the East or even in the West who see yoga as a sacred tradition or as a way of meditation can be, if not offended by these, at least disturbed by these, and seek a great clarity as, as to these terms uh, mean. We even had Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance and things like mm -hmm. that, which is far afield from Zen, so it's not just uh, yoga, but it is a degree of distortion that needs to be addressed. And on top of that, we now have a significant number of people of Indian origin who have immigrated to the United States the past 20 years and have built, so built wonderful temples here, and their children growing up here seeing how their sacred symbols may be debased or abused in a way that would not be done with, say, Christian, Islamic, or uh, Jewish symbols. So naturally there is a reaction. It is a legitimate cause, and it should be addressed. There can be various extreme opinions on various sides that come up, but it is a legitimate issue that we need to look at over the course of time. What are the authentic traditions uh, and what are the deeper teachings uh, versus what are kind of some of the modern uh, marketing ways of developing them. That being said, I think the modern expansion is good, but as things expand, there are some dangers, and we also have to recognize that behind the modern popular expansion, there are deeper spiritual, meditational, knowledge-based traditions and sacred traditions going back thousands of years that we should honor and not just mindlessly uh, commercialize. Mm -hmm. uh, Vamadeva, uh, is there one teacher who you consider your teacher, your guru, and uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, how much time do you uh, give to a, a spiritual practice, and what type of spiritual practice do you engage in, if I could ask? Yes. Well, first of all, I've been honored to meet with a lot of the great teachers of modern India. I've also had uh, great teachers in different fields, Dr. Balavashtan Ayurveda and Dr. B.B. Raman and Jyotish. But my main uh, guru over the last 20 years has been Sadhguru Shivananda Murti of Andhra Pradesh. He's not so well known in the West. He just passed away in June. He was honored by the Prime Minister of India, by the Shankaracharyas of Kanchipuram, and also uh, Shringari, and very highly honored. He was the head of one of the major uh, Shaivic orders mm -hmm. uh, in India, a great yogi and uh, Vedanta. So that is the uh, first part of your question. And the second part, I'm totally engaged in these teachings and have been uh, all along the last, uh, since the, almost the late 60s, whether it's studying, writing, uh, practicing, 
And I have a regular uh, sadhana where I am doing meditation, pranayama, and mantra teachings. And I've also learned a certain uh, yogic art of meditation. So instead of going to sleep at night, we use that time to move into deeper uh, meditative states and also working with the energy around the Brahma Mahurta time uh, in the morning so that our, our sadhana is not something we do part of the day. It pervades the state of sleep. It's also there in the waking state uh, with not only specific meditation practices, but learning from uh, Guruji how to hold an inner awareness as part of one's daily activity and is even part of the foundation of uh, karma yoga and understanding how the teachings pervade the whole of life and nature. Nature has also mm-hmm. been a very great uh, teacher and working with the forces of the cosmic mind through the presence of Mother Earth and Mother Nature. Avamadev, the uh, kind of things you just uh, alluded to for your own sadhana, <clears throat> most intriguingly the, um, the uh, sleep practice, are these practices that you also teach others, or are they um, just private and you teach others different things? Well, we have a lot of things that we teach others through different books and courses, but the deeper teachings are taught at a more uh, private uh, level to smaller groups. But I am actually, at least on this one, I call the Yoga of the Four States. I I will prepare another book relative to those specific uh, practices. We do have books relating to all the other yoga practices, and most recently, Shiva, the Lord of Yoga, uh, which discusses a number of these uh, deeper practices. So we do share them, but there's certain deeper teachings that are for individuals, and there are also certain teachings that we're exploring, and we only will reveal certain things once we've practiced them for a certain period of time. And uh, just for clarification, you say we. Uh, maybe you want to mention... Um Yogini Shambhavi and the American Institute of Vedic Studies, which is what I assume you mean by we. Uh, yes, we is first of all Yogini Shambhavi Devi, who is my wife, but also a great uh, yoga teacher. She holds a lot of the uh, Shakti of the Himalayan yoga tradition. She also has her own books and uh, mantras and is highly respected in India as a teacher in her own right. as one of the great women teachers coming out of India today. We also have some other trained teachers and courses and groups that we work with. I have a strong connection with lots of organizations and like to share teachings. Uh, recently, I did some major programs with Chinmaya Mission in, in India, also with the uh, one of the Kanchi Shankaracharya uh, groups with Swami Dayananda and others. Uh, so we uh, also regard Swami Veda Bharati, Italian, uh, and so we share teachings and do work with a number of these uh, groups and try to help people understand it's not us or us individually. We do have our own American Institute of Vedic Studies, but we have very broad-based connections with gurus uh, and teachers in India, but also with other yoga, Veda, Ayurvedic organizations throughout the world, including as far as Russia and Brazil. Uh, Vamadeva, uh, suppose somebody's listening to this podcast and they're in Poughkeepsie, New York, and they have no background in anything Vedic, and, uh, but they're very inspired. And they're a young person, uh, and they want to pursue uh, uh, being a spiritual aspirant, a spiritual practitioner. Uh, what would you advise them? Where do they go? What do they read? Where, do they, where is their starting point? Well, I always advise 
to read Autobiography of a Yogi and to see the Awake movie that Phil was involved with on Yogananda. Mm -hmm. Yogananda, I see, is the father of the deeper yoga in the West. And uh, living here for so many years and interacting with so many people, he has these more accessible uh, teachings and influences they can start with, but then also to then from that base gradually look into other teachings, uh, Hinduism Today magazine, if you want to understand what uh, uh, Hinduism is, uh, for example. Ayurveda is a good place to start learning Vedic knowledge because it helps you in your daily life with ordinary things, uh, diet, health, both physically and psychological health, and then some basic yoga practices, asana, pranayama, meditation. There's really lots of options to look into mm -hmm. uh, now. But to begin to explore, to take a step, and to do something uh, every day, and to have faith in yourself and your ability to access higher states of consciousness in a meaningful way. Vamdev, you, you spend a lot of time in India, um, and your wife is uh, Indian. Um, you've even met with uh, Prime Minister Modi. Uh, there's a lot of uh, press these days, or a lot of uh, inferences in the media the last couple of years especially, uh, with terms like uh, Hindu extremists or right-wing Hinduism and, and uh, the term Hindutva. Um, what is your assessment of what's going on in India uh, and um, how real is this uh, issue and what misunderstandings might there be uh, for, for people in the West who, who are interested in what's going on in India? Yes, this is a very big question. First of all, I find that almost nobody in America has a decent understanding of social political issues in modern India. They often know a little more than Gandhi and Nehru. It's a very complex country with a number of states, a number of political parties, and a number of movements. This effort to re remove the traditional teachings uh, uh, and to replace them with, we say, more modern, Western, unspiritual influences is not unique to India, but it's been going on there for several decades. And we can also compare it to what is happening in Tibet. In Tibet, the traditional culture is marginalized, but the Chinese have pretty much pushed the Tibetans out of the media pictures. One of our friends is the Lapsang Sangye, who is the Sikyong, or leader of Tibet in exile, and he's telling us now that he can't even get into visa to Europe anymore. So to a lot of Hindu groups have been demonized by Marxist and communist influences who have been very, very strong in the academia and media of India. At the same time, there are groups that could be regarded as more extremist, even among Hindu groups, but they're relatively small, particularly relative to the other religions of the world. Uh, for example, Saudi-funded madrasas, who are called breeding grounds for jihad, are found throughout Asia. Christian schools that promote conversions are found throughout India. The Hinduism, there is not a single program of Hindu studies in any university in India, including Banaras uh, Hindu uh, University. So Hindu influences are actually quite a bit marginalized or put into the background. They've often been uh, politically in the background. And in recent years, as the Indians overseas and the Indians in India have gotten more regard for their heritage, uh, there's been a social revival of, you might say, uh, Hindu influences. 
and the Western-based and Marxist-based influences have often are now feeling a bit frightened uh, by that. So there is a certain, uh, you might say, uh, social upheaval uh, in India going on, nothing like what is going on in the Middle East, but this idea of our tradition has value, how do we preserve it on one hand, and other groups saying your tradition has no value and it should be uh, eliminated. And uh, you do have conservative things in the tradition, like certain caste things that obviously need to be reformed. You have very positive things in the, in, in the tradition. In fact, yoga is only taking off in India today because previously it was regarded as something backward and uh, Hindu. So too with a lot of things like Ayurveda. When I saw Ayurveda initially, it had no funding and no respect. Now it's gaining that because it has respect in the West. So a lot of these traditional disciplines that are looked at very negatively in India, or have been, that are looked on positively in the West, but now that is slowly changing and we see a certain churning and upheaval, and it's important to understand both sides and to understand there is a Hindu point of view, there is a traditional point of view, a yogic point of view. Great gurus like Vivekananda and Aurobindo and even Yogananda also had their criticisms of Western culture. Mahatma Gandhi was asked what's, what he thought of Western civilization, <laughs> and he said it would be a good idea. <laughs> in that context, maybe in the, in the limited time we have, could you address the issue of conversion? Um, just as a, a background, there's been a lot of press in the last couple of years of, of outrage about Hindus trying to convert people, uh, Indian people who are Christian, um, I know because of my time in India, uh, the, the level of uh, disturbance there is about the Christian missionary effort. Could you give us some perspective? Yes, Christian missionary activity is very strong in India. It's massively funded largely through the United States, and particularly through the Christian right in America, the Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Southern Baptists are very active in the south of India, and they demonize the Hindu tradition. The Catholics are also very much involved in conversion, although they're more on the soft side, and they basically they give some respect to Hindu teachers and teachings would say, God would like you better if you were a Catholic or a Christian. Mm. So the missionary activity is uh, very strong. It's highly funded. The churches <coughs> own a lot of land. They have a lot of influences in the media as well. So there is a Hindu reconversion movement that's actually been going on for more than 100 years. Mm. But the, the fact is if, if conversion is going on, reconversion cannot be uh, criticized. But because reconversion uh, has been highlighted more recently and because of the Western money, there's been a kind of demonization of the reconversion movement while not criticizing the much larger Christian conversion movement. The amount of money that's spent in India by Christian and Islamic forces aiming at conversion of Hindus is probably a hundredfold well, I'm not exaggerating, at least tenfold, than the other side, and there are major institutions uh, involved in doing that. This is, again, a major cultural issue, but I think we in the West have to recognize there is a Hindu side, and we mm -hmm. should look carefully as to who from America is promoting these conversion efforts uh, in India, and we would be surprised to see the uh, Christian right very active there as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mama Deva, along those lines... Uh, my understanding is Hinduism is not a religion of 
conversion. It's not like Hindu missionaries go to Europe and North America, South America, Africa, looking to make people into Hindus. Uh, but more of what they're doing in India is uh, responding to um, what many people see as aggressive uh, activities by uh, Christianity, Islam, uh, other religions. That's true to some extent. You have to understand that traditionally Hinduism spread as far as Indonesia and the Philippines to the east. The largest Hindu temple in the world is Angkor Wat. Uh, Hinduism was spread into Nepal. It was very common in Central Asia, Afghanistan. So it did spread, but it spread through a sharing of teachings rather than through kind of this belief-based conversion. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of commonality of Hindu and Buddhist teachings and sharing. There's extensive Hindu temples today, or temples to Hindu deities in Japan, for example. That's been a subject of important studies recently. So Mm -hmm. these religions have spread, but in a non-aggressive way. Right. Uh, Right. And we're all the beneficiaries of that uh, non-aggressive spread Mm -hmm. to the West. Yes, and even some of our older Western traditions like the Celtic and uh, some of the Greco-Roman things have a lot of affinity with older traditions coming out of uh, India. Right. Vamadeva, uh, thank you so very much for your time today. And I, I do feel we've just scratched the surface. There are many areas uh, I certainly would like to go into more deeply with you, as I'm sure Phil would as well. Phil, a- any uh, final <coughs> points? Uh, any other? Uh, yeah, we, I'd like to give Vamadeva the... Uh, like to give him the opportunity to uh, mention his institute and any uh, forthcoming projects or events uh, and uh, books, etc., that he'd like the uh, listeners to know about. Well, first I'd like to thank both of you. I don't think I've received an interview with such a variety of deep and complex questions. I hope I've been able to answer them uh, quickly. In terms of books, Shiva, the Lord of Yoga, has uh, come out from Lotus Press uh, last year. Shiva is the main figure that epitomizes or symbolizes the yoga tradition. He's the Lord of Asana, the Lord of Prana, the Lord of Mantra, the Lord of Meditation. So that has uh, come out. I'm also having a new book coming out in a couple of months called The Art and Science of Vedic Counseling with Dr. Suhas uh, Shir Sagar, who we work with at the Chopra Center and other places showing how we can integrate Vedic disciplines like yoga, Ayurveda, and Jyotish, and also Vastu in a meaningful uh, counseling practice. Our American Institute of Vedic Studies is mainly online-based, online courses, yoga, Ayurveda, Jyotish, but lots of resources, articles. And then my wife, Yogini Shambhavi, organizes wonderful yoga shakti retreats. We have one above Rishikesh coming up uh, in uh, March. We have one in Santa Fe that we'll be doing uh, in August. She'll also be doing another one uh, in uh, Germany in July. So these are ongoing. We're also traveling throughout India, doing regular programs with various ashrams and organizations there. And we do that somewhat with various organizations in the United States. I'll be one of the keynote speakers for the NAMA, the National Ayurvedic Medical Association Conference that will be and I think it's in uh, Rhode Island in uh, April of this year, Dr. Vasant Lyat, another great teacher in the Vedic and the Ayurvedic field, will also be there. So we have these through our website, through our Facebook, and we also maintain ongoing connections with groups and teachers and organizations in India. And is your travel schedule on your website, which we should uh, tell listeners is vedanet, V-E-D-A-N-E-T, dot com. 
Yes, travel schedule, those things are there, uh, and itinerary, uh, ongoing events. You can access over 100 original articles that I have done on all these various Vedic subjects, all the different books, courses, links to various uh, Vedic resources. We try to connect you to the greater Vedic and Hindu community as a whole, and also to recognize that there is a universal tradition of truth, knowledge, spirituality. We can give it uh, different names, but I think this tradition has been better preserved in Asia, particularly India and Tibet, but it's a global heritage. It's spreading globally, and uh, we should all uh, make it our own and integrate it into our life and environment, but in a legitimate and respectful way for these sacred powers of consciousness. Uh, David, thank you so very much. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to have you back on the show uh, sometime soon because, uh, as I mentioned before, there are many, many areas we can go into much more deeply with you. Uh, you're listening to uh, Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. And again, our guest today, Dr. David Frawley, uh, also known as Vamadeva. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great privilege and honor, and uh, we appreciate the level of teaching and work that you're doing. Thank you.